2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Taya Lim joins us to talk about her Giller Prize shortlisted novel, An Ocean of Minutes. Lim's writing has been published by The Guardian, Salon, The Millions, Southampton Review... Bitch Magazine, Utney Reader, and others. And she has received multiple awards and fellowships for her work, including artist grants from the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. She holds an MFA from the University of Houston and she previously served as a non fiction editor at Gulf Coast. She grew up in Singapore and lives in Toronto, where she is a professor of creative writing. And today we're going to be talking about Taya's debut novel, An Ocean of Minutes, which was shortlisted for the Giller Prize. Taya, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Thank you so much. How would you describe
2: An Ocean of Minutes for us?
3: Well, once a bookseller described it as a really intense long-distance relationship, which I quite like that definition, but to be a little bit more detailed. So it's 1981, and Polly decides to take a job elsewhere for her boyfriend, Frank, who is deathly ill. But the difference for Polly is that the job is not just in another place, it's in another time. It's 12 years in the future, and when she gets to the other side, she's even five Five years later than she thought she was going to be. It's been 17 years and Frank is nowhere to be found. And so the book is the story of her trying to find him.
2: So as you mentioned, the book starts in the 1980s, goes eventually 17 years forward. But of course, that mm-hmm. also means we're in the unique situation where we have a future that is also in our past. Yes. Um, <laughs> tell me about why you set it fundamentally Sure,
3: in the past. sure. Yeah. So there, there were a few different reasons. Uh, one of the things that was specifically interesting to me about the late 90s is that it was a time that was very much imbued with an obsession with the future. Like I had a friend who used to drink space juice. <laughs> He'd put blue food coloring into his water because he was like, you know, we're moving into the future, so we have to do futuristic things. And yet we all had this idea about what the future was going to be like. And in a way, it was sort of a future that never came. So it was a time, I think, that had a strong sense of nostalgia, both for what was um, oddly about to come, but also for what was leaving us. And it's a time, I think, that when we look back at it from our particular vantage point in 2018, that seems very... Um, in this very sort of definite fashion, sealed away, in part because our technology was so different. It just seems like a time that's sort of lost forever. So that particular time period was interesting and useful because the novel deals so much with nostalgia. So by setting it in that period, even though it's an alternate version of what that period was for all of us, the idea was that I could enable readers to kind of feel nostalgia along with the characters. Um, Another reason was that I had an original version, well, rather a very early version that was set in the future. I think it was set in 2080 or something like that. And some of my guinea pig readers who read it early on said, oh, you know, it's interesting how you're trying to predict what might happen to us or, you know, uh, what our culture might start to look like if we're not careful. And I realized that that actually wasn't what I wanted to do at all. Um, The book is very interested in the politics of work. And there's a lot about migrant work. But all the details that I took about migrant work come from existing conditions, things that are already happening to people. And I didn't want my readers to think that I was trying to predict ways that we might one day treat people. I wanted to make it clear that these are ways that we are already treating people and we have been for many years. Um, So that was sort of a political reason. And then the last reason was. Is that, this is like an Easter egg that I don't know if anyone has ever caught, but uh, one of my favourite novels and, and one that was definitely kind of a diagonal inspiration, not really a direct inspiration, but a cousin of inspiration um, is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguru. and that actually is set in an alternate past, so that was sort of a little way of, of showing an homage to a novel that I really loved.
2: And as you said, the future for Polly is the 1990s or the early 1990s, mm-hmm. but this is not mm-hmm. this is not, you know, the early 1990s of Grunge and reality bites and my circle no. drive. <laughs> Basically what's happened yeah. is the reason Frank is ill is because there is a pandemic. So Polly goes into a future that is not just, you know, technologically more advanced than when she left, but is a world that's completely unrecognizable to the one she left. Describe yeah. something of that world for us that she finds. Sure,
3: sure. So um it's it's actually in the late nineties. Um it's uh, ninety 98 that she lands. And uh, what she uh, discovers is that she's actually living also in a part of the country that's quite different from other parts of the country. So she lands in Galveston, Texas. And what happened in the South was the uh, pandemic spread with much more sort of violence and force than in the North, partly because it's much hotter down there. And so what the North actually wound up doing was cutting off the South and the North and the South effectively became different countries. And the South is actually deeply underpopulated. There's not many people there. People either died, or they fled, or who knows really what happened to them. So it's this sort of strange kind of abandoned place. And in some ways, it's very wild and very beautiful. And in other ways, there are these sort of artifacts, um, as if the people just got up and left. Like at one point, she passes in the middle of the strand, which is in our world, is a very touristy area in Galveston. But she passes a a car wreck, where some vehicles collided with each other other and no one was ever able to clear it. Um, and also, it just creates all sorts of logistical issues. It's very, very difficult to get to the north because there are no roads, um, there are no trains, you can't fly because of quarantine laws. Um, so it creates these huge problems for Polly as well in terms of trying to find Frank because she sort of figures out that he must have gone north and that must be where he is.
2: I want to talk about Razor, who is the company that, first of all, is in control of the um, obviously the time travel facilities yeah Uh, but then once Polly reaches the future certainly in the south has a grip on everything is some sort of like you know amazon style mass company that that has fingers in every pie tell us something about that company and what you wanted to sort of explore with that
3: Sure, I was really interested in looking at a company that might be causing a lot of harm and a lot of suffering, but through kind of negligence and incompetence, um, and just through the pursuit of profit rather than thinking about anything else. There's in a lot of dystopic novels, especially I think in YA novels, there's a lot of evil corporations that are actively evil. Like they're trying to be evil. They just want to see people suffer. Uh, I was more interested in the fact that I think the vast majority of suffering that we experience as humans, and especially suffering that happens. Um, in an economic fashion is sort of directly related to, I think, not so much companies trying to be evil. And in fact, a lot of these companies think they're doing a lot of good, but instead just a lack of caring, because I do think that so much of suffering comes from that lack of caring. I mean, the example of Amazon is interesting. and, And I wrote the novel really before we started to think of Amazon as sort of as evil as we do now. But When you hear about these stories in the Amazon's sort of selecting factories where the employees don't have time to go to the bathroom, so you hear these stories about um, people finding bottles of urine around the factory floors because they just don't have time to go to the bathroom, they'll be penalized. It's not that Amazon is like Jeff Bezos is sort of in his office, like watching people pee into bottles and he's like so thrilled that they're suffering so much. It's more that it's just, it makes good business sense. And so I was really interested in trying to portray a company like that, one that isn't interested in suffering, but just sort of thinks about what makes good business sense. And even more than that, one that thinks it's doing a great job because that's what time—that's the narrative Time Razor has for itself as well. That they kind of saved the South and they saved America. And a lot of enormous companies that we have now that come out of Silicon Valley also, I think, have that rhetoric that they see themselves as saving the world. And it's interesting to think about um, how sinister that can be in combination with the reality.
2: Polly gets chosen to go to the future because she has a a career is like a vital skill. There's actually a. a A conversation in the book where she says basically you know for some reason in the future that they don't want doctors and lawyers and things which are the things you think they might want polly is an upholsterer yes Um, tell us about why they want her
3: why they want to stories. So one one thing that was interesting to think about was um, there's this great review. Well, it's actually a horrible review that Ursula K. Le Guin wrote of John Riley's On Such a Full Sea in The Guardian a few years ago, and she was frustrated by what she saw as a trend of literary writers sort of swanning into science fiction and not really thinking about the rules of the world and what should be possible and what shouldn't be possible. And I thought about that a lot while I was writing this book. And one of the things that became significant um, in my novel is that there's really, there's basically no trade because there's this anxiety about disease and about the passage of disease. And so there's no ability for the South to get materials from elsewhere. They also don't really have many people Um, They don't really have industry. They can't sort of just be like making furniture themselves. So instead what they're doing and trying to rebuild and what they decide they can offer, at at least in Galveston, which is where Polly is, is that they can be a vacation destination. And Galveston itself is a fascinating city that has many times over tried to reinvent itself as a vacation destination. And I think to this day it was some success. But there were times when it was sort of really trying to be like the Paris of the South, like the place you wanted to be. And so what they decide to do is something they do have access to in a lot of the abandoned homes, and even in a lot of the very grand abandoned hotels, is that they have... Uh, furniture, but it's furniture that's completely destroyed because it's been sitting in these moldy rooms for decades that people have left. And so they decide that, oh, if we can get someone who can repurpose old things, then that is actually going to be more useful to us than someone who can make furniture and all that sort of stuff. And then again, the reason why they're not looking for doctors and lawyers is because I was also interested in thinking about how global catastrophes might affect everyday people. I think there's a degree to which we all know that people who are in demand now will to some degree always be okay you know that sort of people who are wealthy are insulated to some degree and that's definitely true i would say of my family i know that if there was a global catastrophe i'd probably be okay it might be more important um, and more meaningful i think to think about people who don't have a kind of safety net around them and what might happen to them in a disaster
2: tell me something more about that World building idea because you said this is central to the idea of sci-fi to to build a, a convincing world for characters yeah. to inhabit. Yeah. Tell me something more about how you you visualise that future world that Polly finds herself in.
3: Right. It was very much um, sort of one step at a time. I didn't have, like, I didn't sort of build the world and then put characters in it. Instead, it was a matter of sort of realizing, well, she's going to need a place to live. So where should she wind up living? And I I decided there's a, I spent a bunch of time in Galveston because I went to graduate school in Houston, which is just up the road from Galveston. And there's a very strange building in Galveston. It's this very tall, uh, and there's not many tall buildings in Galveston, but it's a very tall, kind of empty building that's all boarded up. And it always really struck me as such a fascinating place. And I thought, well, she can go and live there. And when I first put her in that building, it had, you know, running water and lights, and it was to- and it had an elevator. So they had to wait long time to take the elevator up and down. But after a while in realizing that this apartment building was in this sort of post pandemic world that was so devoid of resources, I realized it didn't make any sense for it to have elevators and to have running water and stuff like that. So instead, um, I had to take away the elevators and she has to walk up and down the stairs to get places. But even that I think lend itself to narrative opportunities, because in going up and down the stairs, you know, she meets other neighbors and things like that, that move the plot forward. So that's really sort of my approach is really more excavation, I think, than creation. I sort of just figure out, well, where does this person need to go next? And when I put them in that place next, I have to figure out what does the object world look like around them? And then I'm thinking about that object world. What opportunities does that offer my story? Uh, And that particular strategy actually comes from an instructor I had in graduate school, uh, Robert Boswell. Um, And he has a great book called The Half Known World. uh, And he invented this term narrative spandrels, (laughs) which is what he calls when you're writing something in a story and you write in a detail just because it kind of has to be there someone needs a kleenex box or something like that and then because you have that kleenex box in there suddenly there's all these other directions the story can go in so that was really instructive and helpful to me
2: tell me more about polly and frank first of all something about their life in the well in the 80s i was gonna say in the past but
3: uh... in, the, in the 70s yeah <laughs> yeah in... it's actually in the late 70s yeah when
2: they first meet
3: yeah um so even though As the novel progresses and as Polly travels into the future, she becomes an outsider in a very sort of specific economic and political way. I think even before she travels, she feels like a little bit of an outsider. Um, She has kind of an unusual family unit. She lives with her aunt, who's this very loving person, but also this very gruff person. And she feels a little bit out of step. I think, with what to her appears to be the normal world. And then she meets Frank. Uh, He's a bartender at a bar that she likes to go to often. And he's sort of the opposite. He seems very much to belong to the ordinary world. He comes from this huge family. He always knows the right thing to say. And he's like very warm and has a great comfort with sort of everybody and everything. And she really gravitates towards him because of that reason. Like she feels like he's her entryway into sort of Sundays where people don't eat alone at McDonald's, but they go to their family home and have big meals. And that's what she's interested in, I think, in him. And for him, I think while he does have this sort of, he's this very large character and he's very charismatic, at the same time, he knows that within himself, there's kind of a mild weakness (laughs) that he might not always do the right thing. And the interesting thing to him about Polly is as much as she feels like an outsider and as much as she's sort of unsure about her place in the world, she seems to always have a strong sense of the right and the wrong thing to do. And so he's very attracted to her for that reason. And in trying to figure out, who these people were. It was actually similar to trying to figure out who the world was. I sort of had to figure out who are the kind of people who would do the things that I'm having these characters do and then
0: go from there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
2: Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Taya Lim. We're talking about her book An Ocean of Minutes. And Taya, as we've already, we've already mentioned, this is a book that features time travel. Time travel in novels can often be, you know, something that's quite a, a logistical nightmare to write about. <laughs> but in this novel, it's, it's, it's really used as a metaphor for Another kind of travel that I was I was reminded of earlier this year. I interviewed Moazin Hamid about his, his oh, yeah. book um But Exit West. Exit West, which yeah. which yeah. uses that idea of like a, a, a sort of central sci-fi idea as an exploration of the idea of mass migration in his, in his book caused by climate change. And again, here Polly is basically she goes from although you know as you said something of an outsider in her present day. Into the future, where she is fundamentally a migrant.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm very delighted that you made the reference to Exit West because I've been like quietly trying to convince people (laughs) that my book is sort of a good partner with that book. So thank you for doing that. Absolutely, yes. Um, Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, Exit West came out, I think, just after we had uh, sold my novel for for publication. So about 18 months before my novel actually hit shelves. But And I was really sort of excited and fascinated by how um, Hamid was also trying to, I think, doing something similar to what I was trying to do in that Um, I was trying to use science fiction to explore migration, to explore, I think, questions of identity that aren't often seen, especially I think within literary sci-fi. Like, There's definitely um, some really amazing and exciting sort of hard sci-fi writers like N.K. Jamison who are, I think, exploring that. But I was sort of interested in doing it within this slightly different structure. And the funny thing was that I didn't set out to write a story about immigration. I just really was interested uh, in the idea of loss, in um, the idea of how, as humans, we're time bound beings, and no matter what, we're always running out of time. And even in a world where, with time travel, we're unable to kind of turn back the clock or to make sort of moments that we want to stay and freeze. So that, that was really sort of what I was interested in, and I was using time travel to really accentuate that feeling and that idea. Um, and it really surprised me when the book turned out to be about immigration. And then I realized that it shouldn't have surprised me because immigration has been a huge force in my own life, so it sort of makes sense that it would seep into my story. But I was really quite happy. It it was sort of an accident that I stumbled across, but I I was quite thrilled that the book turned into that because I realized it allowed me to explore immigration in, in my own way. It's, I think, very difficult to write a new story about migration. It's a topic that's been probed so eloquently and so beautifully by so many other writers, but this sort of allowed me to do that. And specifically, I think what it allowed me to really focus on was the... Like the emotional landscape of displacement. Like, what does it really feel like outside of any particular ethnic experience to migrate, to lose your homeland, to lose not just your homeland, but also all your ideas about what might happen to you and the kind of person that you might be?
2: I'll return to that in a minute, but also issues of class, because, mm-hmm. of course, you know, she becomes a stateless person, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, the, she takes on the status of a migrant worker. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a sort of running joke through the book where she repeats Polly repeatedly says why is everybody suddenly speaking Spanish to me
3: yes
2: (laughs) and and this is you know she fundamentally the, the other people that have done what she has done are all low status migrant worker people
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I was really interested in figuring out how race could be a part of this world as well, because race, I think anytime you're writing about human beings, race and social class are always a part of their milieu. I knew that a big part of the novel was going to be taken up by the fact that people were discriminated against because they came from another time. Um, But I also knew that there had to be those sort of intersecting kind of identities, just because, like I said, I don't think you can write about human beings without consciously or unconsciously acknowledging that. So for Polly, uh, she's mixed race and for most of her life she's been white passing she's white and she's Lebanese but it's only when she goes south and when I won't give too much away but through a series of events things get a little bit worse for her and her status changes and suddenly everyone's very comfortable with noting that she has certain features that aren't very white and in fact that she looks like to people in that location like she's probably from Mexico and so everybody starts speaking Spanish to her and she's very puzzled by it. And also doesn't, is not really able to figure out why everyone is treating her that way. And it's actually someone else who suggests to her that maybe it's because her stature has changed that people are comfortable as seeing her as a different race. And she doesn't even sort of take that in. Like she's kind of a little bit skeptical. She's like, I'm not sure that that's really why. I was really interested in the fact that race does change depending on where you are and what your class status is. Uh, I'm also a mixed race and I grew up in Singapore. I'm Chinese and I'm white. And when I was growing up in Singapore, everyone thought I was white. And then I moved to Canada as an adult and everyone thought that I was Chinese. And I think what that really did was it made me realize that as much as we want to be self-determined beings, we don't actually entirely decide who we are. It's the people around us, both people who don't know us at all and people who are very close to us who decide who we are. And one of the essential features, I think, of immigration is that when we lose the people who are close to us, we also lose the sense of who we are. And that's, I think, one of the most disorienting and unsettling things. And it becomes hard to insist to everyone around us, no, this is not the kind of person I am. I'm this kind of person. If there's no one to back us up. And it's something I think both wonderful and terrifying of being human how much we are composed of the people around us
2: again i'm I'm reluctant to give too much of the book away but when we're talking about polly's situation as ostensibly a migrant worker this is in the in the parts of the book that are set in galveston in the south which as you've mentioned has been massively depopulated Polly and Frank's life before the time travel was in Buffalo, right up in yeah. in the north. Yeah. And for certain reasons in the book, Polly finds herself back in Buffalo mm-hmm. and both because the North isn't as depopulated, but also, I guess, because of, you know, refugees and things. She finds herself back in a buffalo that's changed completely beyond recognition. Yeah. Um, Is is incredibly busy, is there's lots of new build gone on. And I wanted to talk something about that as well, about this idea of her, I guess, the, you know, the distance in time that she takes finding herself in this place that she both recognizes but doesn't recognize.
3: Yeah. I was really so Buffalo is is her hometown essentially. And what I was interested in, in there was the way that you can never go home again. Um, because people say like home is a place in time and place becomes kind of temporalized and time becomes kind of geographied. And so I think this is an experience that a lot of people who migrate have. They eventually whether they move back altogether or they just go back, I think, to their to their places of origin to visit, it is this sort of deeply disorienting thing because you go back expecting, uh, I'm going to go home. And then that becomes an impossibility. And sometimes depending on where you're from, where you go back to actually is really unrecognizable. And that again was a little bit drawn from my own experiences um, in growing up in Singapore, which is a place that changes at this is sort a of vast breakneck speed. Uh, and I was also interested in that idea of what makes a place a place. And I think something that's very challenging for all migrants to grapple with is that there is, I think, a desire for us to imagine the places of our lives as kind of staying still, as freezing in time, so that we can go back to them, and we can see them, and we can visit them. And yet the fact of the matter is that those places are populated by millions of other people, right, who will go about changing everything. And when we go back, I think something that we have to grapple with is the fact that a place doesn't wait for us and that that's often a very positive thing you know for that place but how then do we continue to have a relationship to that place and that's that's what Polly has to figure out how is she going to remake her relationship to this place and this is a place that she sort of dreamed of returning to and yet it appears to not be there at all anymore and is it there or is it not there and that's something that people say to her they're like well it's right there it's still there and she keeps saying it's not and she has to sort of figure out how she's going to live within this place that is both the place she's from and a completely alien place and
2: also we've we've not really mentioned the sort of central idea in the book which is about can love survive distance Mm -hmm. and time Mm -hmm. and as you said at the very beginning somebody has described it as you know the ultimate long distance relationship (laughs) and it absolutely is that you know this this idea that well first of all Polly. It's no time at all for her, although obviously she is, you know, she's she's stranded in the future for longer than she thinks. Yeah. She's fundamentally the same person yeah. when she wakes up in the future as she was, you know, the day before when she left. But, of course, you know, that's not the same for Frank. He's, no. There's a big gulf in time. And, again, we, we won't talk about what happens, but I just want to talk about, you know, this idea about can love survive distance.
3: Yeah, I... I... Was um I think I, I was really interested in sort of questioning, is it really better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all, um, and also thinking about what is love for, you know, and what does love get us to do? And are those sacrifices that we make for love, which are often portrayed, I think, within literature as being vastly positive, and often actually come at the cost of female characters more often than not. Are those sacrifices really sort of as wonderful and without question um, as we think they are? And, you know, in our world, there's many, many migrants who travel very long distances, often for the sake of, of not of a lover, but but of a child, you know? And so there is always that question of like, what is the cost of love? And I didn't I definitely didn't want to say that there is no purpose to love or that we shouldn't do it. You know, you should love people. You shouldn't do things for other people. Bad idea. But really sort of thinking about why do we keep loving each other and how how do really more how do we keep falling in love when love can be so devastating? One of the really important things about Polly is that at a young age, she lost her mom. And that's partly why she's so close to Frank in a way, because she feels like he's her only kind of link to a familial world. And yet her knowledge of what it means to lose someone that you really love, in some ways also makes it difficult for her to be vulnerable. So rather than sort of offering an answer to that question of of what is love for. I was just really interested in showing how deeply we do grapple with love, right? And how, how much it matters, how much it makes us who we are, and how impossible our lives are without it. And yet thinking about what it might cost us and what that might mean.
2: I wanted to talk about how the reception to the book has been, and obviously not least the fact that it was um, shortlisted for the Giller Prize.
3: Um, yeah, it's been kind of a funny a funny journey. Um, the Giller Prize shortlisting was was very thrilling and an, an immense honour. It's my first full-length novel. I did uh, publish a novella quite a few years ago, um, so it's not something that you necessarily expect. But it was something that was really wonderful for me because I think the book is its a bit of a weird book. <laughs> like, it's sort of... It's not entirely time travel because as you pointed out like time travel is sort of the premise but it's not the plot i really think of it as sort of migration literature but if you look at sort of the basic specifications of the novel that doesn't really come across because it looks like a love story it is a love story but there's a certain pragmatism i think about love that might be less appealing to someone who's looking for like an enormous sort of epic story so it's many things at once and also steps, I think, outside of a lot of things at once, which was completely my intention. But I think what it meant was that it's not always been immediately evident to readers of how to read the book, because it's sort of stepping outside of, of certain templates. And uh, and one thing that I, that I was sort of tickled by was that readers were a bit surprised by the ending. And I didn't think that I was being particularly controversial um, with my ending. But what it made me realize is that there's a great deal of space for innovation, even within traditional fiction, even within, I think, tropes. We don't just, it's not that the only place for experimentation is, uh, you know, in like autofiction or something like that. There's a lot of, I think, space for doing really interesting things within really sort of plotty, page turner type fiction, which is the sort of stuff that I'm interested in writing. So the killer thing has been really wonderful because I think what it's meant is that I've noticed that it's made a lot of readers, I think, a little bit more kind of willing to sort of go along f- for the ride and sort of suspend disbelief and also assume that choices that I made were deliberate rather than sort of accidents. And that's really wonderful. But it also makes me think about how, as readers, myself included, we should maybe be willing to go along for the ride in, in any book that we read, not not just the books that are lucky enough, I think, to get sort of picked for prizes and stuff like that. There's, and like I said, I'm totally guilty of this as well. I think we do often as readers have the expectation that a book should do what we've seen a book do before you know and not be so strange and not go in such odd directions but I think we can experience great rewards I think for sort of being willing to let our writers experiment a bit more so it was like sort of a good lesson for me I think as a reader because I think I can be very sort of stubborn and close-minded
2: okay can I get you to read as
3: a little bit? yes sure sure um so I'm just gonna read uh, right from the beginning of the book so this is the first three pages September 1981, people wishing to time travel go to Houston Intercontinental Airport. At the orientation, the staff tell them that time travel is just like air travel. You even go to the same facility. People used to be apprehensive about airline travel too. But when you arrive at the airport, it's not the same at all. Before you can get within a mile of the terminals, you reach a bus stop moored at the edge of a vast concrete flat where you must leave your vehicle and ascend a snaking trolley like the ones they had at the zoo. A quarantine taxi makes its way to that lone bus stop, the airport appearing through a million chain-linked diamonds. The driver is encased in an oval of hermetically sealed plexiglass. In the back seat, Frank is wearing a yellow hazmat suit. The color marks him as infected. Now is the time for last words, but Polly's got nothing. Frank keeps nodding off and then snapping awake, stiff-spined with terror, until he can locate her beside him. We can still go back, he has been saying this for days. Even in his sleep, he carries on this argument, and when he opens his eyes, he moves seamlessly from a dream fight to a waking one. Already his voice is far off, sealed away inside his suit. She pulls Frank's forehead to her cheek, but his mask stops her short. They can only get within three inches of each other. The suit rubs against the vinyl car seat and makes a funny, crude noise, but they don't laugh. Polly would like to breathe in the smell of Frank's skin one last time, a smell like salt cut with something sweet, like when it rains in the city. But all she gets is the dry smell of plastic. The news outlets went down weeks ago, but that didn't stop the blitz of ads for the Rebuild America Time Travel Initiative. Billboards painted on buildings, posters, wheat pasted over empty storefronts, unused mailboxes stuffed with mailers. There is no flu in 2002, and travel to the future and rebuild America, and no skills necessary. Training provided. At first, the ads were like a joke. Gallows humor for people who were stranded once the credit companies went down and the state borders were closed to stop the flu spread. People like Polly and Frank, who got trapped in Texas by accident. Later, the ads made Frank angry. He would tear the pamphlets from the mailboxes and throw them on the ground, muttering about opportunism. You know they don't market this to the rich, he'd say. And then an hour later, he'd say it again. Now, they are pulling up to that lone bus stop, and they can see the new time travel facility across the lot bisected by trolleys. The facility is a monolith, the widest, tallest building either of them has ever seen, and something primal in Polly The only thing remaining of familiar airport protocol is the logistical thoughtlessness of the curb. Once you reach it, the line of unfeeling motorists waiting behind you means only seconds to say goodbye. "'You don't have to go,' Frank says. "'Say something else.' say something different. Polly is smiling and shaking her head, an echo of some long-ago courting coyness that once existed between them. It has landed here in the wrong place entirely, but she can't get control of her face.
2: So I've been talking to Taya Lim. We've been talking about her novel An Ocean of Minutes, which is out in the UK from Quercus Books. Taya, thank you so much for taking the
3: time to share it with us. Thank you so much, Neil. My pleasure.